This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. Hi, my name is Dr. Lou Diaz, pastor of Butte Bible Fellowship located at 2255 Pillsbury Road in Chico. And I'm providing inspirational teaching for you from God's Word each week. Listen to my weekly radio program, Encouraging Words with Dr. Lou Diaz, at 10 a.m. on Saturday or 10 a.m. on Sunday. If you would like to hear my current message series, you may call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521. Today we begin a new series in the book of Jonah, and it's entitled, Jonah, Man on the Run. And this is a very fitting title because there are four chapters to the book of Jonah and I have four titles about running. Running from God is Jonah chapter 1. Running to God is Jonah chapter 2. Running for God is Jonah chapter 3. And running behind God is Jonah chapter 4. Jonah, man on the run. Now what you need to know about the book of Jonah is that it's a poem. So here's Jonah who has lived through this experience and now he's writing an autobiography in the third person. There was a man named Jonah. And as he writes this, he writes it poetically. He pulls no punches. He's very honest about his shortcomings and failures. He is bearing his soul, disclosing what went on in his heart and mind in regards to his relationship and his response to the Lord. Now, for us to appreciate that this is a poem, I'm going to read a part of a famous poem that you know called Casey at the Bat by Lawrence, Ernest Lawrence Thayer. Now, it's about a baseball team, the Mudville baseball team. It starts like this. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville nine that day. The score stood four to two with but one inning more to play. And then when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a pall-like silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A staggering, straggling few got up to go in deep despair. The rest clung to the hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought if only Casey but get a whack at that, we'd put up even money now with Casey at the bat. Well, the poem goes on to say that two unlikely Mudville baseball team players somehow get hits and now are standing on second and third bases waiting for mighty Casey to hit a home run and bring them home so the Mudville team can win the game by a score of 5-4. to four. The poem continues. Then from 5,000 throats and more, there rose a lusty yell. All the people in the stadium, it rumbled through the valley, it rattled in the dell, it pounded on the mountain and recoiled upon the flat. For Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was pride in Casey's bearing and a smile at Casey's face. And when responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat. No stranger in the crowd could doubt was Casey at the bat. Well, it goes on to say he got strike one and strike two, and he didn't care about that, but he wasn't going to let that third ball go by. So it goes on to say, he signaled to the pitcher, and once more the dun spear flew, but Casey still ignored it, and umpire said, strike two. Fraud, cried the maddened thousands, and echo 
answered fraud. But one scornful look from Casey and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain. They knew that Casey wouldn't let that ball go back again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there's no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. All right, so just as we had that poem, so Jonah wrote a poem about his life experience and how he struck out. He struck out the first time up the bat, he got a home run the second, and the third time he struck out. The first time God says, go to Nineveh, he goes the opposite direction to Tarshish, and he struck out. The second time... He finally is in Nineveh. He preaches uh, about judgment. The people repent and turn home run. But then he's resentful that God forgave these cruel, violent people, that he showed grace to the undeserving. And he struck out again. So this is a very honest book. And you know what? I am sure that you know the story of Jonah. A little boy was asked, can you tell me the story of Jonah? He said, sure. God puts him in the belly of a whale because he doesn't do what he wants him to do. And he lights a candle and the whale throws him up on the shore and he gets to be a real boy for the rest of his life. <laughs> oh, that's Pinocchio. <laughs> All right. Let's start with this. God will often ask you to do things you don't want to do. I want you to think about this for a second. Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, God, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. God was asking Jonah, a patriot of Israel, to go and preach repentance for forgiveness to the enemies, the arch enemies of Israel, Nineveh. Nineveh had a reputation for how violent they were. They would uh, cut off heads. They would skin people alive and bury them in sand and stick a stake through their tongue so that they would go crazy before they would die of thirst. They were cruel and unusual. They were sadistic and they were wicked. And God wants me, Jonah, a, an Israelite, to go to our arch enemies and preach to them that they might repent and be forgiven? No way, Jonah responds. And how often are we asked to do something and it goes against the grain of who we are or what we're about, and we say, no, I don't want to do that. We run from God. Can I be honest with you? Obedience is not necessarily doing something that we ordinarily want to do. 
That's easy. Eat, you know, go ahead and, and do this, and I want to do it, so it's, it's obedience. No, obedience is really obedience when it's something that goes against the grain of what we want to do, isn't it? Luis Palau says, you know how the Bible says, take up your cross daily, you know, die to self, take up your cross daily and follow me. When you're dying to self, it's like this. Here's a picture of a cross. This is my will. This is God's will. Which am I going to do? My will or God's will? Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, not my will, not my will, but yours be done. That's obedience. Obedience is when we obey even when and especially when it's not what we would choose to do. What does obedience look like? A wonderful missions leader named Richard Winchell, Dick Winchell of the Evangelical Alliance Mission taught me this. He says, we need to have this attitude to say to the Lord, whatever you want, whenever you want it, and wherever you want it. And you know, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Mark 16, 15. We're to obey the Lord. Whatever, whenever, wherever. No holds bar. You know, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer, you pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it's being done in heaven. How do you think God's will is being done in heaven? I believe that those angels are doing God's will immediately and completely. So when we pray, your will be done here on earth by me and those who call you Father, as it's being done by the angels up in heaven, we ought to be doing God's will immediately and completely. No holds bar. God, whatever, whenever, wherever. The second thing we learn here is you can always find a boat sailing in the wrong direction. Jonah 1.3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went, or Tarshish, he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now here's the thing. How often do we think we can do things better than God? We know better than God. So God says do X and we want to do Y. Actually, God says do A, and we want to do Z, the complete opposite. And that's what Jonah did. He thought he knew better than God. God, you don't want to forgive those people. You want those people to be destroyed and punished and get what they deserve for their wickedness, their violence, their horrible treatment of others. They deserve everything they can get. Well, now watch this. Had Jonah obeyed the Lord and gone to Nineveh, it would have been a trip of 500 miles. He went to Tarshish, which is a trip of 2,500 miles. Isn't that interesting? We go way out of our way to disobey the Lord when it would have been easier 
to just obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Do what God asks you to do, and you'll be blessed. Go around the long way, fighting him, running from him, taking a major detour, and sin is going to take you farther than you want to go. It's going to uh, get you in more trouble than you want, and it's going to cost you greatly. So Jonah found a ship, and he went the opposite. Now, I want you to notice something. It says he went down to Joppa. If you were to study the book of Jonah as a poetic piece, which it is, but it's also a true narrative, you would find that it's brilliantly structured. Jonah, in his rebellion, went down to Joppa. And then he went down and down and down. And only when he turns do you see him going up, up, up. Isn't that brilliant? Hebrew poetry brings that out. We can't really appreciate it as much because we don't read Hebrew. Most of us don't. But it's just a beautiful thing. The third thing is God may send a storm to grab your attention. So here's Jonah. He didn't want to do what the Lord asked him to do. He found a ship to go in the opposite direction, and God sends a storm. It says in Jonah 1.4, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. That's a pretty powerful storm. Now the point here is that when we run away from the Lord, and we keep going down and down and down, making a mess of things, God wants to get our attention, doesn't he? And he's going to send a storm. He's going to shake us up because he wants us to listen to him. He loves us too much to leave us in that downward spiral. He wants to turn us around. C.S. Lewis said this, We can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Do I have your attention? Do I have your full attention? You see how God gets our attention? So when you say, Lord, why is this happening? Why is my world being turned upside down? Why am I going through this crisis? I want you to know several things. Number one, it's not always God's discipline. Bad things happen to good people in this world. Job was righteous, but he went through terrible tragedies, one wave after another. He lost all of his possessions, all of his employees, and all of his family, and he lost his health. It wasn't because he was bad. It wasn't because he rebelled. It wasn't because he was running from God. So good thing, bad things happen to good people. It's part of sin being in this world and this whole world being off kilter. Don't confuse bad things with God. 
Don't confuse what happens in the world with God. If a bad thing happens, don't say, well, God does all that. Yes, God is sovereign and he allows, but sin is the cause for suffering and pain. However, secondly, sometimes things happen for the glory of God. Jesus came to this man who was born blind, and the disciples say, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, this is not, this suffering isn't the result of sin, his or his parents, but that God might be glorified. Sometimes we struggle in suffering and with pain that as we trust the Lord, God is glorified. But can we be honest? Sometimes we go to the woodshed because we deserve it. But even then, let me make a very important distinction between the word punishment and discipline. The goal of punishment is to shame. The goal of discipline is to train. You got that? The goal of punishment is to shame. The goal of discipline is to train. God wants to teach you. He wants to train you to do better in the future. And if he didn't care about you, he'd let you go. Now, there are two kinds of parents. There's the parent who is authoritarian. And that parent just rides on you all the time. You can't do anything right. And, and that parent is always criticizing you and putting you down. And that's a terrible way to treat a child. But the opposite is true, too. The, child, the parent who's permissive says, oh, do whatever you want. I don't care. Here's money. Yeah, you want to do this? You want to destroy your life? Go ahead. And guess what? Both kids don't feel loved. The one who is raised by an authoritarian parent who always rides them does not feel loved. But the parent, the kid who, who that parent let him get away with murder, you think he would feel loved because he was spoiled by his parents. No, that kid is coming back to his mom and dad and says, you didn't care about me. You just let me run amok. You were permissive and didn't give me direction. And I made a mess of my life. They say the best way to raise a child is like the way you hold a wet bar of soap. If you hold the wet bar of soap too tightly, it squirts out of your hand. If you hold it too loosely, it slides right out of your hand. But a gentle hold, where you're not authoritarian or permissive, you're authoritative, you're loving, you're tough and tender. That's the way to raise a kid. And God is the perfect parent. And he knows what we need, and he'll get our attention. So Jonah's worst nightmare was exactly what he needed. It says... Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. That was exactly what Jonah needed. Before the church service started, Chuck Bain told me an incredible story. He said that a prominent Christian um, in our community, their son was arrested and put in jail for life for attempted murder of a police officer. He was doing a robbery, and as he ran from the police, he shot towards them, and they threw him in jail and threw away the key. And the parents asked him, how is it with you now? And this man says, it's the best thing that could have happened to me because I've trusted in Christ, and I'm growing in the Lord and I'm a witness to others. It was the worst thing that could have happened, but it was the best thing that could have happened. 
Sometimes when we go through a tragedy, we go through a crisis, we go through a terrible life experience, sometimes some of the richest, deepest, best things come out of it. And this is what Jonah needed. He needed a time out. And he had three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. It doesn't say a whale. It says a great fish. And it could have been, the original translation is sea monster. So it was a, an unusual fish that could encompass the body of a human being. Now here's something very interesting. Anyone who says Jonah is a fictional story has to come to grips with the fact that Jesus referred to the book of Jonah and validated it. Matthew 12, 28 and 30, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of law said to Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What did Jesus just do there? He validated the story. When you stop and think, is it possible for a human being to be swallowed by a fish and live to tell about it? Jesus says, yes. And just as Jonah was swallowed up and three days, three nights in the belly of a fish, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be put in a tomb. And on the third day, I will rise. Jesus, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and coming back. He talked about the sign of Jonah. But I want you to notice something. But the Lord provided a great fish. Had the Lord not provided a great fish, when Jonah was thrown overboard by the sailors, what would have happened to him? He would have drowned. That would have been the end of Jonah. What I see in the book of Jonah is God is so sovereign. He's a God of details and a God of timing. God has already prepared a large fish. God has given this large fish an assignment. And it's something that that large fish was more obedient than Jonah. And that large fish, get this, was at the right place at the right time to swallow up Jonah before he gulped in all the seawater and drowned with water in his lungs. Isn't our God awesome? God provided and so right in the midst of your tragedy, many of you were burned out of paradise, the town, paradise. And you know what it was to be in the midst of that storm, that firestorm. But God provided a way for you to escape. And God has been providing for you ever since. And you've been seeing God's grace and God's goodness. And you've been experiencing God's comfort. Praise be to God that he's Jehovah Jireh. God, our provider. God is sovereign. He knows what you're going through. He loves you. And he wants you to be intimate and close to him. He wants you to abide and remain in a re relationship with him. He doesn't want you to run away. He doesn't want you to rebel. He doesn't want you to suffer anymore from your own folly. He says, come on back home. You're always welcome. So Hebrews 12, 11 really says it's worth the hurt. When Shirley and I went for me to run the San Francisco Marathon, the motto for the San Francisco Marathon is worth the hurt. I have the t-shirt and it says worth the hurt. 
and it says, the marathon even runners fear. I said, surely there's no way I'm going to PR that is getting my personal record on this, uh, this marathon. But I did. I'm so big and heavy, when I ran up the hill and I was running down the hill, my big weight carried me down and I kept on running fast on the other side. It was the best thing. And it was worth the hurt to get my best time. No discipline, Hebrews 12, 11 says, seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The book of Hebrews is telling us God loves you like a dad, and any dad worth his salt is going to discipline you. He's going to train you in the right way so you don't mess it up. You don't go into things you shouldn't. And so the benefits of God's loving discipline are these. When God disciplines us, it awakens us so that we come to our senses. You remember the prodigal son? By the way, the word prodigal means wasteful. The wasteful son insisted that his dad hand over inheritance, and his dad, as far as he was concerned, was dead to him. And he went to a far-off land, and he squandered all of that inheritance. And then he's eating pig pods as a Jewish kid is now a hired hand with unclean animals, pigs. And he's eating the food of unclean animals. He's so hungry. He's starving. And the Bible says, and he came to his senses. What am I doing here? Even my servants back at home eat better than this. I know what I'll do. I'll go home and say, Dad, will you take me back as a servant? I'm sorry for blowing it. And he went back, and his dad was watching for him. And his dad ran to him, which an old man does not do. That's the improper thing to do in society. But the old man ran to his son and embraced him, fully accepting him, and restored him as a son, giving him a robe and a ring and sandals and had a fatted um, animal killed for a party for him. Will we only come to our senses and realize how much God loves us? And we have gone to a far-off country and God wants us to come back home. Secondly, uh, God's loving discipline helps us to see the destructive nature of sin. It not only affects us, it affects the other people in the boat. These sailors were in a violent storm. Why? Because of Jonah. Loving discipline magnifies God's love for us. It, pro it pro provides evidence that we are God's children. Loving discipline protects us from future consequences of sin. Next time we have a choice and we come to that fork in the road, we're like, eh, you know what? I've been down that way, rebelling against God, thinking I know better than God, not trusting him, going way out of my way to disobey him. Ah, that doesn't work. I'm going to save some time and keep on being blessed by, by following the Lord this time. And you know, loving discipline humbles us. We say, your thoughts are higher than mine. Your ways are higher than mine. As the heavens are above the earth, so are your thoughts and ways higher than mine. You know what? I'm not the master of the universe. You are. I uh, step out of your seat and let you be back in control, which you'd never stop being. And God's loving discipline trains us in being holy. When we learn from God's discipline the right way to go, then we have a tendency to stick with the right way. If I play something wrong on the saxophone and someone teaches me how to play it correctly and I practice it correctly, I'm going to play it well over and over again. I'm trained to do that. So when you're practicing obedience, you're training in holiness. 
and then it gives us purpose and direction. The person who's aimlessly living life and going from one problem to another and uh, looks like a, uh, a disaster ready to happen, that person doesn't have purpose or direction. God loves you. You've been set apart for God's purposes. He wants you to follow him. So in plain English, obedience is doing what God wants. Disobedience is finding a way to rebel. Pain is God's megaphone to warn us. And discipline is God's loving provision. Would you just repeat this with me? Obedience is doing what God wants. Disobedience is finding a way to rebel. Pain is God's megaphone to warn us. Discipline is God's loving provision. Do you see that from the life of Jonah in Jonah chapter 1? What is God teaching you about himself? What is God teaching you about yourself? How is God training you to be more conformed to the image of his son? How is your response to God's loving discipline a testimony to other people? How are you a better person now as a result of what you have gone through? All these things are questions that Jonah is answering and sharing with us. I want you to respond now in prayer. And you can pray either one of these prayers or both of these prayers as you respond to what you've heard. You can say, I have been actively running from or passively drifting away from you, Lord. I humbly come back to you today. I want to cooperate with what you want to do in and through my life. Thank you for lovingly welcoming me back, Father. Wouldn't that be a great prayer for you to pray? Maybe you are fully committed. You're all in and you need to say, Lord, I'm yours. Your will be done in and through me, whatever, whenever, and wherever you want. And it should say, by your spirit. We can't do it in our own flesh. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit. Would you just spend some time praying? Do you need encouragement? I want to share my spiritual gift of encouragement with you. If you would like to hear my current message series, you may call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521. Call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521 to find out how you can connect with our weekly worship services and faith-building messages from God's Word.